Hi everyone, this is Sam Graham Felsen. You're listening to Hey Man, the advice podcast for men. Each week, me and my co-host Avi Klein will field a question from you, uh, our listeners, um, and do our best to answer it with the help of a special guest. Uh, this week, our guest is Ben Mathis Lilly, who's a staff writer at Slate. Um, he is their uh, news blogger. Um, and, uh, every day you will see his byline, uh, on the latest shenanigans with the Mueller investigation or the latest natural disaster, whatever is big in the news, Ben is there, um, offering his quick, uh, hot take as, as they say in the slate world. Um, and, uh, he's, he's a great guy. He happens to be an old friend. We were college roommates, not college roommates. We were, we knew each other in college. We were roommates after college, um, in New York city. We lived in a, uh, tiny, horrible roach infested six floor walk up in the East village, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And, um, anyway, you'll hear about, um, what it's like to, uh, to be in this kind of high-paced news environment from him, how he deals with the stress of that job, uh, some of the perils of uh, getting things wrong occasionally when you're a a quick turnaround news blogger. And uh, he had a lot of interesting, um, fun things to say. Also about growing up uh, in Michigan, uh, in 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 an uh, industrial town in Michigan, and then going to Harvard and that transition. And, uh, of course, we've got our advice question coming up in the second half of the show, which I thought was a really fun one this week. I won't spoil it for you. Uh, without further ado, here's Ben Mathis Lilly. I don't even know why I'm on this <laughs> What are you doing show at all. Yeah. Uh, so, so, full disclosure, um, I know this week's guest... Uh, He's my father, <laughs> Ben Mathis Lilly. Uh, no, uh, we, we're old friends, um, and um, uh, Ben is a, a is a writer for Slate. Um, he's been there for how many years? Uh, coming on uh, five years. And he's the daily uh, news blogger for them mm-hmm. and uh, writes very uh, incisive, witty, funny stuff. Before that, uh, you were at New York Magazine where... Uh, you famously uh, were in charge of the approval matrix, and for people who don't know what that is, it's the it's the uh, graph at the back page of the uh, of New York Magazine, um, yeah, which basically charts uh, on this graph: highbrow, lowbrow, despicable, and brilliant. Right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, usually, like brilliant, highbrow is like the latest like novel or whatever. And what would be an example of like despicable, lowbrow? Like I mean, re, you know, reality TV yeah, is yeah. is was a pretty good source for that kind of thing. Your tabloid, uh, tabloid material. Yeah, but Ben got to like, you know, it's not like he came up with every idea, but he like he was responsible for for getting solic- you know, getting people to send in what are, what are your low brows this week? What are your high brows? And anyway, it was a pretty looking back on it, like a pretty like, a lot of power, insanely power. powerful cultural yeah. influence. It's and fun. It seems fun. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was between like thirty two and thirty six uh, cultural products, events, news uh, items per week. I got to just uh, to rank and distinguish them as a you know as a twenty seven year old associate. <laughs> right, it's a lot of power. And junior actually, associate editor. I mean, looking thinking about it now, like. So many people have copied that, and like, um, it was almost like the in a way, like the precursor to um, 
to listicles and like to to like these visual kind of like list based things that like obviously got popularized by BuzzFeed and other places. But like, you know, it it just I feel like it's had it was it was uh, it was this kind of pioneering thing, and it, you know, it still is this important. Thing. It's also uh, worth noting invented by Emily Nussbaum, now uh, really? now a highbrow author herself, highbrow right. reviewer, uh, yeah. cultural critic right. at the New Yorker, right? Film critic at or TV critic, TV rather, critic. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to ask uh, a little bit about. Uh, basically your life before getting to uh, New York, um, which is when we became friends. We became friends in New York City. We actually went to college together. Uh, we knew who each other was. We had um, mutual friends. But we ended up needing roommates after college uh-huh. and basically got connected and became roommates after college. Uh, but before, before New York, um, so you grew up, in where? I know where you grew up, but you tell us where you grew up. I grew up in Midland, Michigan. Uh, I was born in Ames, Iowa. Uh, when I was two, my family moved to Midland, Michigan, which is, in fact, in the middle of Michigan. It is a kind of semi-rural area, but it's also the headquarters of the Dow Chemical Company, mm-hmm. so kind of an interesting uh, sociological mix. And for people who don't know about like Dow's significance in American history, you want to drop some knowledge? Yeah, uh, manufactured napalm, um, Agent Orange, um, and then the specific, uh, there was a half-owned subsidiary called Dow Corning, which my uh, father was a chemical engineer. He worked for them for many years, and uh, they manufactured silicone breast implants, which uh, for anyone who was reading the news in the late 80s and early 90s was a very like long-running story and controversy. Because and, uh, of the leakages, right? Yeah, the le- alleged uh, neuroimmunological uh, damage caused by the leakage in the silicone breast implants. So I don't think I've ever like asked you this, but like, what was the? Vi- I mean, I imagine a lot of the kids that you grew up with had dads or moms who worked, or both who worked for Dow. What was the vibe like? Uh, knowing that like your town is famous for this thing that like his the history books like you know uh, cast as a kind of villain like figure like was that like was there a consciousness of like oh shit like no i would say that most people probably didn't know about it um I think I learned when I was in high school because you it's in history books. Like it's in a history book that anyone else might have read was the protests against Dow Chemical in the sixties. I think it was, you know, people if they came to a campus job fair they'd get protested yeah. um in the late sixties and early seventies because of their connection to Vietnam. But, you know, for, for one, obviously Dow Chemical wasn't spreading that around about itself, uh, in terms of its internal culture. Um, and for another, um, you know, I, I think the more ambient sense was of of like of imminent like health and environmental damage being done to the area and to the people in the town. Like there was kind of, it's always like dark humor about that. Like that was kind of like assumed that everyone was like getting, um, like, uh, taking on a higher risk of cancer because of what was going on. So that, yeah, there was a kind of, it was more like, um, like the political side of it wasn't, uh, as uh, salient as like the, uh, this kind of like general sense of, uh, impending doom. Like growing up, like in, the Simpsons town Springfield next, yes. to, next yeah. to the plant with the three-eyed fish in the water kind of thing. Yeah, and everyone joked about it, but ever, it didn't <laughs> seem... Drink the water or something. Right. I mean, it's right. The three-eyed fish was a running joke about the Titabawassee River. That's the uh-huh. name of the local river. Yeah. But, like, I mean, it's funny. I mean, it, the people joked about that, but I don't think anyone actually really worried about it. It's just kind of, you know, it was just kind of where you... I didn't realize it was unusual to grow in a town with a giant, famous, chem, like, chemical uh, factory in it until I, until I moved away. Um, uh, I'm guessing that you were the only person from 
Midland, Michigan, who got into Harvard. Um, uh, in general, there weren't that many people uh, that I met in college. I, I went to Harvard, too. Most of the people I met in, at Harvard like were basically from New York, Boston, or around Boston, or like L.A., and went to like, or San Francisco, and went to like a few private schools or mm. prep schools, and like, you know, there were very few people that just came from like a regular public school in like a Rust Belt town. What was that transition like going to Harvard coming from a place like Midland? Um, well, it was very intimidating. I should say I don't want to uh, oversell my my humility qualifications um, <laughs> and that that since there was a major corporation there that did a lot of chemical manufacturing a lot of smart kids there was smart them. people yeah. but they would generally go like we have a friend from Huntsville Alabama and everyone's like whoa you from the sticks and he's like actually right. that's where like NASA rockets are built and everyone's father is a rocket <laughs> right. scientist genius yeah so you had a lot of people yeah. who would go into like Michigan Tech which was a very good technical school or would go yeah. to University of Michigan to, to go into engineering but yes culturally it wasn't the kind of place where people were thinking of going to Ivy League schools and in fact I applied to Harvard as a as kind of a joke kind of a just like I found the application in the bottom of the box when I'd applied to all the other places I actually thought I would go um and then uh you know through the kind of random process that you go through got in there and uh figured I kind of had to do it um yeah it was very intimidating because I mean culturally coming into the place where as you said everyone uh, had almost it seemed like everyone you met had been to a private school um, and was a little more sophisticated, both in terms of actual n knowledge of like literature and, and political theory and things like that, uh, that didn't come up as much in your kind of standard um, high school English and history classes, uh, but also just socially. I mean, people who had seen like real drugs, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, which was not, I'm sure there were, that there were people in my high school who had done that, but, you know, the culture wasn't as strong as it was maybe for some of these private school yeah. Manhattan people. Yeah. I mean, even at my school, I, I grew up in Boston, like the idea of like anyone at my high school doing cocaine would have been completely mind blowing. Right. You right. know what I mean? Whereas, like, yeah. for the New York kids, it's like. <laughs> Whatever. Right. It was something that they, they kind of gotten. They didn't do it because they right. kind of gotten over it in like tenth <laughs> right. grade. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, so, um, but but it seems like you made friends relatively uh, without too much difficulty. I mean, you 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 obviously befriended your freshman year roommate, who's still one of your best friends. But um, but like, how did you like? Wh what was your um, what was your way in socially? You joined the, the newspaper, right? Yeah. Did you join that right away? Yeah, I did. And I think that was kind of uh, the, the way I uh, ended up feeling like I had a, a place to belong. Um, because uh, I, I found not only within the newspaper, but like within the specific niche of the magazine, uh, the student magazine. And so, you know, you find people who you know, like share your sensibility, which is actually still what I do in, in my work is like the whole point of like, uh, you know, as a magazine writer and uh, and as an editor, which I was before, like it's always a, you're always seeking out people who have the right sensibility. So that's actually kind of what I did in my personal life as well. You know, people with the same set of references and sense of humor and uh, you know and and, and interests. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of where I maybe carved in my carved in my uh, social niche. Um, one of the things I I wonder about um, a lot because I'm a writer is basically just like how other people who work in journalism, writing, anything that requires like thinking as your main job, uh, just like deal with like block, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm, I'm curious, like it, it, it seems to me, before even getting into that, like it seems to me that like 
being a writer or being somebody who runs the approval matrix, like that requires a certain level of intellectual confidence and a certain level of like just comfort with yourself. Like, yeah, like I know what I'm talking about enough to like make this bold declaration that I'm going to publicly share with like a, a shitload of people. Yes. Um, do you like, and yet you're this dude from, you know, um, from like not one of these like power center towns. Right. You know what I mean? Like how do you, how did you like get the confidence to even do this kind of work to begin with? Or is it a struggle to like maintain the confidence? Like does it ebb and flow? How does it work? It is a struggle. Yeah. Uh, I'm familiar with the kind of insecurities you're describing. I think actually to go, this is kind of, I'm getting a sense of these, what these questions are about. (laughs) This is kind of of psychologically probing, right? (laughs) So yeah. So the reason I became a writer in the first place, I think, like I've thought about this, uh, is because it, it goes back to an even earlier need to feel included or to feel like relevant or special, yeah. which was, you know, I started, so I went from, from a private, uh, I went to a Catholic school, a small private Catholic school, elementary school um, in, in my hometown, and then went to public school for uh, seventh grade, which was, you know, it was a cultural shift, um, going from a school with 15 people in your class to, I think there was probably... 300 people in seventh grade, 200, something like that. Um, I was four foot, I was like four foot eight in seventh grade. I was very, very small. I could not make the basketball team. You're the shortest kid in your class? There was a one more, one other kid okay. named Craig, who I remember because he was the only shorter person. Thank God for yeah. Craig. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it didn't help that much, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, and I was like, uh, I was a geeky kid and, and, you know, I was in the, I was in the band, you know, I played the trumpet in the band. So like none of those things were obviously like incredibly like useful socially, uh, in terms of the social hierarchy. But the thing that I found that people did kind of like, and they didn't like it that much, like it didn't like enough (laughs) to make me actually popular, but like I would write from the school newspaper and I'd write these funny, uh, what I, you know, what at the time passed for like funny columns about like going to school. Were you doing like... Junior Dave Barry kind it of It really stuff. was. Yeah. It was Dave Barry. That was yeah. the thing. Like, and yeah. Dave Barry was in the newspaper every weekend. And so, like, that was what every kid who joined the newspaper thought it was they were going to do Dave Barry. So I would write these columns and, like, and I don't even mean to suggest, like, it, it made me popular with the popular kids because obviously that's not how you get popular. But just even being noticed by anyone, you know, just even your teachers or people, just, just being noticed by anyone feels so good when you're in junior high, which you've obviously explored in your, in your book. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, I think that that reward that I got from that kind of feeling like that it's performance, you know? And so I, that feedback I got is kind of what kept me, kept me doing that. And, and then, you know, I, there are other things I like about writing and I feel yeah. like it's an important job and journalism is important and all that. But like, if you're looking at the roots of why I'm doing that stuff, it goes back to that. So yeah, to, to, to take it back to your question, it's still some of the reason I'm doing this is because I like people thinking things were funny or insightful or whatever on Twitter or in you know, just in my you know my colleagues, like I feel like maybe the general public underestimates the importance of journalism colleague feedback, like yes. that's or even who, even the Slack feedback that you yeah. get, like on your internal Slack. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. who you're. No one is reading everything you write yeah. except your boss and maybe the other people in your department. And so that's really, really who you're writing for. I that mean, actually, no, that seems like such a because I, I can't imagine. Like writing for like an anonymous audience seems impossible to gauge. Sure, it's so great to have like people you want to impress. Yeah, specific people. Yeah, which is great because if you were just real, I mean, for for ninety nine point nine percent of the things you're writing, if you were hoping to get feedback from the public about it, it's yeah. not happening. Right. You know, uh, and so, I can say with my novel, like definitely the thing that was most meaningful to me was just 
basically hearing from like about 15 other people who I think are smart, who I respect, Yeah, you know, who mm -hmm. I c consider mm -hmm. to some degree to be my colleagues, like, you know, reaching out to me and telling me that they appreciated it. So, um, yeah, so that's who you're writing for. And I think so, um, you know, that feeling of, uh, like to showing to them that, you know, what you're talking about is important. Um, but it is something that I struggle with, not just as existentially, but in, as far as writing about the news, uh, just to, as an actual practical matter, it's hard to know everything about everything in the news. And so I kind of have to check myself to feel like, like to ask, am I, am I overextending uh, my, my level of expertise here? Um, because as you also know, um, you know, especially in, given the way the kind of writing economy, the news economy works, Today, like the kind of most popular thing you can do at any given time is say something is bullshit, yeah. you know, or yeah, someone yeah. is bullshit. Yeah. And that's true. I think that's an important job. Like that's, I, there's definitely a need in, for having journalists call bullshit on things. But that obviously gives you an incentive to say that about stuff that maybe you don't really understand fully. And so that is something that I'm sure I have, I'm sure there are embarrassing examples of places where I've overextended my knowledge. Um, but I, I hopefully try to restrain myself from doing that. Um, uh, so one of the famous things about Slate that people even mock is that like Slate always has a hot take on Slate. Like Slate yeah. never just has a... They like go the other way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. They never have like the 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 Jake Tapper uh, take on something. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. um, even Jake Tapper is uh, it, like... They never have like the Chris Saliza kind right. of like... Right. Like DC insider classic take. It always has to be counterintuitive, whatever. So that's that's an additional level of pressure. But even if you worked at a more kind of mainstream place, you know, like Politico or M NBC News or whatever, um, uh, it would still be a lot of pressure to constantly like have something to say about like something in the news, right? Yeah. So like, what happens on a day where like maybe it's like you know, and I want to ask you a little bit about how having kids has affected your writing too in a second. Okay, like maybe okay. it's a day when like your son <laughs> kept you up super late at night. That's today. You feel yeah. Like shit in the morning <laughs> and you actually just are tired and your brain is groggy or whatever, or it could be like you're well rested, but you just whatever, just weirdly don't have a take. Yeah. What happens in those circumstances when you're like, but I still have to put something out there. It's my job. And I also have readers and like people who are expecting right. a few of these posts every single day. Yeah, uh, kind of. Uh, today was the, exactly that day. I feel like I was not the only one who did who felt that there was not a lot of fresh material out there. I mean, part of the problem with the the, the news environment now is just that it, I mean everything is covered so quickly, and and uh, you know I I don't want to overstate this, but like there are a lot of smart people writing about the news. Like, and I'm writing about elections, and like Dave Weigel of the Washington Post has been thinking about elections about 60 hours a week since he was 20 years old. And, mm -hmm. and he's, that's 20, but it's 20 years. And so like, I, am I going to really like surpass his expertise on it? No, like you have, you do have to try pretty hard to find an angle. Um, you know, so right. So there's the feeling of not only like, is there anything happening, but do I have anything original to say about it? And what saved me today was just that Elizabeth Warren said kind of like a funny dismissive thing to a, a bank regulator. And so I just wrote about what happened. Like the best thing that can save you is just something interesting happens, right. Right. you know, and I didn't have to manufacture any like particular level of insight about it. Just like that was that. And was sometimes your job is just 
being a curator and having the sense like, yeah, ah, this this Warren quote is good and people should know about. This. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's what it would be a real nightmare as being a New York Times columnist where you're supposed to not only have something smart to say about it, but like 800 words right. of smart to say about it. Can you speak a little? I, I don't know what your experience has been, but the journalists I've met, like, I don't quite understand how like one's instincts get sharpened like they clearly do over time. But it seems like a really informal way of getting like taught to think in a certain way. Because I'm always struck when I speak with journalists mm-hmm. that they have a particular way of looking at things. Yeah. I, how does that? How do you cultivate that? Um, I think that uh, part of it starts with. Um, I think it's good to have a you know a background to be very pretentious about. It. I think having a background in the liberal arts is uh, <laughs> is useful. Um, uh, I, obviously, that's not necessary. A lot of very, very smart people do not have a liberal arts degree, and you know, uh, you don't have to have a degree at all to be a good journalist. And many people don't. Um, but I think that one thing that I learned from uh, from going to a, a fancy pants school and taking humanities classes was to never take anything at face value um, and then to ask myself why I didn't take it at face value. And so that's the process of humanities education, at least in theory. And I'm not, wasn't a great student. So I don't want to, again, I don't want to oversell it, but you know, it you just gets that instinct gets into you of taking any source and asking, well, what is the source? What is the source's perspective? What are the source's motivations? So that was really useful. Another thing about it is just the kind of uh, the more, uh, just the tradition of journalism, which which started for me even before that in high school. I had a great journalism teacher in high school. I don't want to sound like I'm underselling my high school. I had some like really fantastic, like truly, like movie, you know, cinematic, like inspirational teachers who were just like great mo- role models and and were their excitement about 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 reading and 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 writing was was infectious. And and I look back at that and feel like I couldn't have done without them. So another big one was just my high school journalism teacher, and just you just you just start. Anytime you start working on a newspaper, you you just get the kind of oral tradition, mm-hmm. you know, of like how do you write a story and what are you need to be what do you need to be critical about and what do you need to be skeptical of and how do you prove something, mm-hmm. um, and so it just starts it starts like that and then you know from there I had this this kind of additional um, education in college and then and I just worked for a really good. Um, Magazine, New York Magazine. I mean, I, I think I can say it was really good because I was the most junior person there, so I didn't really know responsibility for it being good. But like, there's just very, very smart people. Particularly Adam Moss is the editor in chief of New York Magazine. He, he actually just retired. Um, but even having to show your work once a week for 20 minutes to Adam Moss was a real class in how to be, uh, how to think about everything. And so he was thinking not only about about um, the merits of an argument, but about how that argument fit into what other people were saying, like we were talking about, and how the best way to present that was. And I don't think I've ever worked with anyone. I've worked with other people who are who are maybe as smart as him, but no one who had as sharp of attention. His his attention span just never wavered, mm. and so that was kind of uh, you know. Ho- hopefully, I carry some of that with me, uh, which is just to think about every single thing you're saying and how you're saying it. Uh, and to never let yourself just kind of slip into um, putting a paragraph in because it's kind of the same paragraph you read everywhere else, you know? Yeah. Uh, he was just really, really good and relentless about that, and not even in a... He was a very mellow person, so uh, he wasn't like a... wasn't like get your writing back and it's covered with red ink and you're, he you know fires, fires you three times every week or anything, but it was just like, I have to be sharp to live up to the standards that this person is setting. So that's kind of where, at least you know, in my experience and everyone's 
like I said, you know, there's people who who dropped out of college and started writing for the, you know, the newspaper in uh, Topeka and and yeah. were covering, uh, you know, the the you know covering a civil court in Topeka for for five years, and that's how they learned it. Right, so right, it's right. A, there's whole different ways, but that's yeah. that's my story. Ben, um, you have a uh, like really strong bullshit detector, which comes from your. Um, not only being a journalist, but also being an editor and like looking for stuff that rings false or that lacks evidence, but also like finding things that are cliches. And uh, so Ben actually read uh, uh, a draft of my novel and went through with like a fine tooth, tooth comb. And one of the most helpful things he did was found uh, just language that, that was... Um, that just what either it was a cliche or it was just stock language, and I'll never forget this because now I teach creative writing now, and every time I see this phrase, I always like tell people to cut it. It's the phrase "as if on cue," <laughs> like my crush walked into the door. That phrase "as if on cue," like I never realized. Like yeah, that's like that's just like such a lame thing to like. What does that even mean? Yeah, like, like yeah. you know, um, of course it's as if on cue. It's a fucking made up story. <laughs> made it up. So like everything's on cue. Right? But anyway, that's the kind of thing Ben Ben has a great um, ear and eye for. But one thing that I'm that I struggle with, I've done a little bit of journalism, but like I feel like my friends who are journalists have a quality that I either lack or just am, am just struggle with, which is that like. Um, the ability to remain skeptical and not get suckered um, into things and not be kind of a sap for things. Because mm-hmm. um, I can sometimes be a sap and just like... You're an enthusiast, want, I yeah, would say. Well, yeah, like, yeah. for example, yeah, I went like and worked for Obama. Believer. You know, right. like I totally like believed that he was like... I mean, I didn't believe he was perfect, but I it was close. You yeah. know what <laughs> I mean? So, um, but I just wonder like... Um, you know, there's this famous book, which you probably, I think, I think you've read, because I think we've talked about it, called um, The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm. It's this classic. Shamefully, I haven't, but people okay. talk about it so well, you much know, that i the famous yeah. first line of the, so Janet Malcolm, she's a writer for The New Yorker. She wrote this book uh, about a kind of unscrupulous journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, but she, but it's also about just the, the art of journalism. And, and, um, and the first line of, is something like, Every journalist who isn't too full of himself to like, you know, or just isn't blind, whatever the phrase is, every journalist who isn't full of shit (laughs) knows that what they do is morally reprehensible. That's the first, that's the opening line. And, um, and that like really spooked me. I'm just wondering like on a, like, how do you deal with the question of like, do you ever feel like, you know, um, that that being skeptical all the time can kind of like turn you into this cold, unfeeling person who like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I feel I I I feel like I might have the opposite problem in that I'm always I'm always kind of trying to convince myself of the the happier version of the story. Um, you know, I think even compared to a lot of other journalists I know, I'm less of a cynic, um, and I think that can I think I've gotten predictions wrong. Not that my job is particularly making predictions, but I've been wrong about stuff because I had too much faith in right. people or institutions. Like you didn't or think Trump was going to win. Yeah, I mean, but no our it... next guest, Andrew Morantz, did think Trump. He's that much of a cynic that he knew Trump was going to win. I, there's yeah. one the people. Yeah. I feel like everyone has the person in their life who knew, and mine is Joel Anderson, who's actually this new host of Slate's uh, Slow Burn. And I feel, I, you know, it was a Twitter DM or something, and. Because uh, we had worked together at BuzzFeed, and then he was and he was doing uh, BuzzFeed or ESPN, 
and we had just happened to get in touch and he mentioned, you know, he said, you know, it could happen. I mean, they elected Jesse Ventura in Minnesota and that logic is unimpeachable. That is crack. That did right, happen. Right. And that's why Trump could have won. And he did. And yeah. he was right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, so, right. That's a big one. But a lot of people got that wrong. But even on a smaller scale, I feel like sometimes I like look for the, you know, look for the optimistic explanation. Um, you know, and I think the, the, the journalist and the murderer quote is about also, um, I, that's interesting. This is one I was thinking about today because I've made a call for another project I was, I'm working on. Um, I mean, I think part of what she's talking about is, as I understand it, uh, that you're no one ever likes the way someone else tells their story. Yeah. So ever, I mean, just no, no, nobody has ever liked it, and even in the friendliest, like authorized bi- autobiographies, it's still like, couldn't you have talked about my biceps a little? Yeah. Bit more? yeah. Or someone's family is upset by it, and it's just, it just that never, you can never tell someone else's story in a way that they find that that matches obviously their self conception, um, and that's anyone. Not that's not even people who are you know egomaniacs or anything. Um, so I, so I, th- I think that's kind of part of what she's referring to because you, you always have to approach someone and say, I'm going to tell your story, and then, but you know hmm. that they're not going to be happy with it, if you're honest, because the, no one ever is, I, I don't think. Um, and I, I don't know if I would go, uh, this is me like trying to make the rationalizing case for it. I, I don't know if that's indefensible. Like I think you have, people have to tell stories. It's a necessity of human existence and communication that someone else is going to tell your story. Like, whether or not it's the media or just like people talking to each other, community. Every community is gossip, has gossip or or, or uh, news, and like no one necessarily is gonna like. I'm not necessarily the way you're like the way like the way you convey some argument we had to our friends. You know, um, not that we actually face that issue that that often, but like you could. I mean, right? Would that would it be surprising in any way if at some point in our our hopefully long friendship? We were upset at each other because we disagreed on the interpretation of some very simple, seemingly straightforward thing. That happens to everyone. So I don't feel like that's like a journalism problem as much as a human problem. But certainly, it's I make my living by doing it all day. I guess so. I, I yeah. I mean, it's it, a it's a, an acute thing though that you like when you're interviewing someone as a journalist, like you know, I mean, the TV version or the Hollywood version of a journalist is like some some asshole who's like totally like stiff and like just like you know asking the hardest questions ever but like in real life you're like being friendly like right. you're not trying right. to be a dick you're trying to be right. friendly you're trying to like draw someone out yeah you're trying to draw someone in and but then like if you're doing your job and if the person is somebody of significance or somebody who has power like part of your job is to check is to put a check on their power so yeah. like inevitably you know you're not necessarily going to slip in a gotcha question but you're right. going to ask a question at some point that they're not going to necessarily feel comfortable with. And I, I just personally, like, I just can't get over the, like, discomfort of that. So I think, <laughs> it's, I think it's brave. I just think it's brave to do it. I don't think it's immoral. I think, I think right. you know, Malcolm, I mean, she was, I don't think even think she thinks it's immoral. I think she was just being provocative. Right. And, but um, but it's certainly uncomfortable, and it's yeah. you know. Um, so all right, I we really should get to the advice question, yeah. which is the whole point of this <laughs> podcast. But right. I do have one more, one more, uh, hopefully psychologically probing uh, question <laughs> about just being being a journalist right now in 2019. Like, um, obviously you've 
written some things where you've been wrong. Yes. Um, but you've also written some things where you've been right and just some dick on the internet was like, fuck <laughs> you, you're wrong. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Uh, do you... How thick is your skin for trolls? Like, and when people talk shit, like, how often do, does it ever get to you? And, like, when it does get to you, like... What do you do? Do you tell your wife about it? Do you like punch the wall? Like, what do you, how do you deal with trolls? Uh, I mean, strangers never hurt your feelings. I don't think probably from, for, for almost anyone. Um, the thing that can happen, which is really the thing that's actually like emotionally uh, devastating is when like that peer community uh, like doesn't like something you wrote. Um, and that can be internal or external, but it, it, it is a unique condition of the way the kind of the... You mean one of your colleagues, like, literally writing something on Twitter being like, this was... Yeah, or, <laughs> that, ha yeah. that happens. Yeah. I mean, that happens. That's the thing. Like, the publications are, are getting, you know, publication, like, the, the barrier to publication is, is way lower than it used to be, which is great, which is great. I guess this is like one of these things where you have to caveat it, like... We're hearing from a lot of people who we didn't hear from before, and I don't want to go back to the like 1970s where it was like 15 white guys in their 50s were only people who wrote in New York. That's that was very bad. But you know, part part of everyone having a voice is that people are going to realize they disagree with each other more, and that's that's fine. But that can be that can be hard, and that can, and that's the the kind of place where it gets difficult because you you know I don't want to. I don't want my colleagues, like, I don't want to let down my colleagues or have them thinking that I have, like, kind of a retrograde or, or stupid or, you know, chauvinistic viewpoint on something, uh, you know. And so I think that was probably hard for a lot of places in the, kind of in the thick of the Me Too, um, you know, uh, coverage. Uh, I don't have, like, a particular example off the top of my head for myself, but, like, that's when it really gets tough is when, we all at Slate, I mean, gen no one really likes Donald Trump as a person or a politician. So, you know, like if, if the proverbial like Patriot 69,000 on Twitter is calling you a shithead cuck, right. uh, that's a little easier to 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 shake off. But, but when, like Aziz Ansari, for example, right. a gray area, more right. gray area type issue, there's going to be disagreement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's the, so when those things get happen that that really divide people who think of themselves as having the same sensibility and kind of common viewpoint on the world. Like that's when it actually is tough, and it's and it's tougher now than it ever has been because um, because of like because places are doing a better job of having different uh types of people on on staff like it's not just the same you know um you know graduates of the same three ivy league schools and that's that's good and but it you know it leads to kind of friction sometimes and that's that's difficult to manage so you've really never cared when a stranger is like you're a fucking dumb <laughs> dumb 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 dumbass uh i think someone called me a shit stain like a shit <laughs> Come stain, come stain. <laughs> On my first Slate article, this guy from Detroit who was like a well-known writer in Detroit and blogger at the time who I've ended up meeting and hanging out with and he's fine, he's, he's a nice guy, but like called me a cum stain. <laughs> uh, and that hurt. Because, yeah, that's the other caveat here, like to be self-aware. Like there are like Jew any Jewish writer is going to get, if, he, if, this, if his Jewish writer is writing about Trump and white nationalism, he's going to get a thousand people finding his home email address and sending a picture, like a graphic picture from the Holocaust. Like that is upsetting and that I don't have to deal with. And any woman is going to get people 
trying to finance doxing them and saying they're going to rape them and and so it's a lot easier to shake it off from my perspective as as from my you know from my from my level of privilege so i i shouldn't shouldn't make it sound like every time that happens that can happen is someone can call you stupid but no one's gonna like yeah be like you catholic motherfucker right right i mean people Um, will be like oh i can't believe this white man wrote this um but like yeah again that's not as that's not as um you know that's not suffering as much as a lot of other people yeah how do you feel about giving advice to a random stranger? <laughs> I feel extremely qualified to do, to we do this. Are. We all are. We all are. All right. So the way we usually do this, just to set it up, I'm going to read the question, and then we're just going to make sense of it for a little while, and just like we're not going to like dive right into advice. Yeah, we're just going to like talk it through, whatever's standing out to you, and we'll see. Yeah, just try and and tease it, tease it out, and then and then. Usually through doing that, I think we we kind of arrive at advice that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Hey, man, I have an awkward situation that I need some advice on how to handle. I should note I'm 30, work as a project manager for a high-end contractor, I'm straight, and live with my girlfriend of three years. A good friend's bachelor party is coming up soon, and he's having it in Vegas. This is part of a friend group that I spend more time with. I spent more time with when I was younger, but I feel a lot of loyalty to them, even though I don't see them very often. Part of the reason that I don't see them is that I've gone in a different direction in my life, and these guys seem to have never grown up, although I should say they're all professionally successful. The problem is this. I just know they're going to Vegas to have a real Vegas experience. They're going to be strippers, blow, gambling, someone, maybe even many of them will hire escorts. None of this is my vibe, but the strippers, hookers thing is really not something I'm into. My girlfriend has an even bigger problem with it and doesn't want me to go. I don't know what to do. If I don't go, I'll really hurt my friend. If I go to some things but skip out on the strip clubs, I'll be a total loser in their eyes. I guarantee no one else is skipping out on that. What should I do? Signed, drip on the strip. <laughs> <laughs> so I love this question because this is like the most extreme version of like one of the classic conundra that has come up uh, in previous conversations we've had, which is like um, solidarity with your bros yeah. versus like, doing something that like abuts against your conscience or whatever. Yeah. And like, there's like way, way less extreme versions of that all the time of like, you know, I don't know, like someone who doesn't want to watch football anymore because of the CTE stuff and like yeah. feels bad because of all of his friends are having a Super Bowl party. This is like, <laughs> this is so much more intense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so anyway, I just want to throw, throw it out there that, um, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be in his uh, shoes. Right? As an aside, I I just didn't. You know, I went to Oberlin. None of my friends uh, <laughs> had bachelor parties, even or like most of them are just in like partnerships and never even got married. But I have met a lot of people who had bachelor parties in Vegas, like people that I like. So it's way more common. I didn't know how common that. Have was you it. ever been to a party uh, th- where there was a stripper? I've been to a strip club before. But have but you not, been to a party where there's no, a stripper? Yeah. Have you? Yeah, yeah. It's fucking awkward. Man. Yeah, I would think so. It's super awkward. I haven't been to... I mean, it was probably like literally, I don't know, 15 years ago or 12 years ago or something. It was a long ass time ago. But I remember just feeling like, oh, God. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously... I'm a human being and a part of me was excited, <laughs> but I was like, Oh God, like now there's, here's like the goon who like shows up with them. He's uh-huh. weird. Now they're, I don't know. It was anyway, I didn't, it was not, 
I, I wasn't. Uh, I did not feel great about it. But I also wasn't going to be like, that's it. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm out of here, guys. Right, right. It wasn't going to be like a, a made-for-TV special where I'm just like, I'm out of here, guys. <laughs> we used to be friends, but it's all over now. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, a strip club is a different thing. Like, I think all, basically every man my age I know has at some point probably been, even like our most prurient friends at some point have been dragged to, to a strip club. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, and this, uh, a stripper party takes it to one level, and then the all my friends are going to hire people for sex. <laughs> that's and, a really intense. Well, taking cocaine takes, yeah. takes it to a, <laughs> I a know, real level. Right. Well, that's hey. the thing. There's like all of these different uh, vectors going on. There's the like, everyone else is doing coke, and I don't want to do coke. Sure. Uh, uh, at least I wouldn't personally. Yeah. Um, there's there's the stripper stuff, which yeah. is already going to make some people uncomfortable. And then there's the, like, even if you're not going to um, hire an escort yourself, yeah. it's pretty uncomfortable to know, that, like, you're hanging out with some dudes, and then, like, a second later, they're going to be like, all right, see you later, Gotta I'm going to go. go to my prostitute now. Presumably, yeah. I guess I'm just speculating that some of these friends might even have girlfriends. Maybe I'm reading into it, but, like... Yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a more harrowing Shit. dimension also, yeah. yeah. Totally. So, so right. So now he's got. I've the, definitely heard stories like oh, that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've heard stories like that too. Of, of, anyway, it's so that adds another dimension, which is like now you might know that like one of your friends, uh, you know, cheated uh, on his partner, and um, you know you have to have the like you know old bros before hose code. But like, what if that partner is actually like a friend of yours? You know what I mean? Well, like, yeah, and actually that makes me think like one of the subtexts here in this question is like, if you say no to that stuff, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know in those movies where like, you don't take the, the dirty cop, like doesn't take the payout or whatever. Like if you're not like in on it, then I feel like you're less trustworthy. I guess I'm, I'm a man. Yeah, none of Serpico's, the other guys at yeah, the station exactly. house trusted Serpico. Exactly. Yeah. It's a great movie. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think just to play the other side of this, like, um, I don't, when we're not ready to dive into the advice yet, yeah. but I don't think one thing I just want to rule out is, uh, oh well, he just definitely shouldn't go, and mm -hmm. he should just boycott mm -hmm. it, and like um, because I'm just I'm just imagining like if one of I don't know I assume this is a really close friend because otherwise like if it was right. a random dude yeah. he didn't then care you about it, he would just be like fuck it obviously I'm not spending this yeah. money doing this morally compromising shit <laughs> I'm trying to imagine like one of my top dogs from high school. Mm -hmm. Who I really do care about, who has gone, uh, has taken a, a dark turn or whatever, but I still care about the guy. Yeah. Um, and he's getting married. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. Like, that's, you know, I wanna, I wanna, like, you know, and a lot of dudes, you know, take their bachelor party incredibly seriously and feel deeply hurt if somebody, like, doesn't show up to their bachelor party. So that's a big deal. And, like, you know, so I, I, I do feel like, um, you know, like, if he goes, like, certainly he's not a bad guy for going. It's mm -hmm. and In fact, he might be a good guy for going mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not just, like, being holier than thou and, like, you know, being like, <clears throat> we're no longer friends because you've taken this turn. You know what I yeah, mean? So. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, there is possibly a, a kind of easy backdoor out of this, which is that um, never having done this exact situation in Las Vegas, but having been to Las Vegas... And also having been in the company of of twenty something uh, males, um, 
it could be a chaotic situation in which perhaps his participation is not going to be closely monitored mm, yes. mm-hmm. at all times. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say that. I mean, the funny thing, in my experience, like, um, you know, like, I, I've, I've talked to you about this, Ben, and, and Avi, I've talked to you about this, but, like, I, like, uh, have... I, I went through a period of, like, re- being really strict about, like, not drinking because mm-hmm. I felt like I was drinking too much. And, like, now I'm, like, moderately drinking again. But, like... Um, I was really like anxious about just seeming like a disgusting buzzkill <laughs> when I was around my friends. Yeah. yeah. And I was like so hyper aware. Like I, I literally would like stress out so much that I would like call Sasha and be like, what should I, should I just have these two beers at this thing just so it won't be awkward when I'm ordering like a seltzer at the bar or whatever. Yeah. And, and like she was correct. She was like, no one's going to care. And the truth is nobody like, in uh, eighth grade, when like dudes are like starting to drink for the first time and uh-huh. feel insecure about themselves drinking, they do peer pressure. And they're like, hey. "If you don't drink this beer, you're a fucking puss." You know? Like nobody who's nobody who's thirty seven <laughs> cares at all yeah. what I'm drinking yeah, at a yeah. bar. You know what I mean? Like nobody would ca- like. So I just think I think like if I think if he would obviously if he was being super uh, super serious and you know. Uh, uh, Nah, man, Coke's really not my scene, or whatever. <laughs> then, like, dudes might feel almost right. like, you, like shame people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But like, if he's just like, Nah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Right. Like, I really doubt that. Like, you know. And so I feel like he could just do the Nah, I'm good on each one of these yeah, right. uh, moral <laughs> quandaries, right? Um, uh, also, go heavy on the vice he is comfortable with. You know, whether that's so gambling like or, or uh, drinking. Yeah. You know, or the, uh, the the ones that are only self destructive uh, to show that he's capable <laughs> yeah. of just. Some some real depraved behavior, but uh, but limiting it limiting it to the ones. Well, that... I actually think I, I know you're half kidding, but I think that's a good point because like it. I, I feel like if um, if I was having a bachelor party in Vegas and there was uh, somebody who came who like just simply wasn't partaking in a single vice, right. I'd be like, why are you in Vegas? Right. You yeah. Know what I mean, it might actually. I don't know. So. Well, it's like any situation. If you're not engaging with your friends, you're yeah. gonna seem standoffish and weird. It just happens to be that in this situation, everything they're asking you to do seems to go against, uh, you know, what you stand for, perhaps, or what you're comfortable with, and that's a, that's like a real bind to be put into. Yeah, I think like the gambling thing. I mean, unless he has like a gambling addiction. <laughs> you didn't mention right? that. Yeah. Like, I hate gambling because. Um, it feels I, bad. First to of lose. all, I know I, I have an addictive personality. And when I was a kid, I basically did the kid version of gambling, which was constantly buy baseball cards and try to get like the hologram card, <laughs> yeah. which is basically a kid kid gambling. It yes. was. And if, it, if I got a $20 hologram card, I would go sell it to somebody for money. So it was basically just legal gambling for kids. So that's part of why. But I also just like. I know that I'm going to lose. The odds are that I'm going to lose and I just hate the idea of losing money. But I feel like if I feel like I would just suck it up and be like, "All right, I'm I'm blowing 100 bucks. I'm not going to do 1000, but I'm going to blow 100 bucks mm-hmm. here." Mm-hmm. Just so that I can be like part of this so I can be in solidarity with like this vice squad during, during a bachelor yeah. party. <laughs> you know? Yeah, long term this individual may consider extricating himself just uh, from this group entirely, just because what seems like the values are kind of... Uh, you don't want to feel like a killjoy <laughs> around your friends. I don't know if this is like an all-the-time thing. Right, right. Well, okay, so the, but the, let's stick with this question of extricating oneself long-term. Yeah. 
Um, okay, if this is a friend you met at work in your 30s, mm-hmm. not that not that tough of a call. Right. If this is a friend you met in college, right, a, a tougher call because like you feel some loyalty, you know, to your college buddies, whatever. Let's say this, if this is a friend in high school, even tougher. Let's say this is like a friend from childhood mm, where right. like you know this person's parents, you know this person's siblings. Right. You you knew that this dude's father passed away and you went to the, fu- like you've been through a million things. You know things. The, the other escorts that, <laughs> you that, he's, that he's worked with. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but you have, you have uh, a, you know, life. It's, I mean, to me, really old friends are almost, Almost in the category of like a cu- like even more than a cousin, like almost a sibling, like a really old yeah. friend, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we can all agree that like you can't just uh, like if your sibling's a pain in the ass, you can't just like extricate yourself mm-hmm. from your sibling. Right. You right. have some like right. obligations to those people. So yeah. I don't know. I just think this is a this is a tricky thing. Um, like it's, and I'm not saying there shouldn't be certain friends from one's past, no matter how deep deep and lasting your relationship was that at a certain point you shouldn't cut them off. I don't know if you read this um this this cover story in New York uh New York Times magazine this week by the, that writer Will Hilton. Oh, I seen this. I did not I didn't read it. So that. like so and we're, I'm going to invite him on the show. I I, yeah. I I think he'd be a really interesting guest. Like this is a his, his best friend was his cousin who was like kind of a gun nut military dude, super hyper masculine dude and like one day a few years ago he snapped at like a backyard party with kid with their kids around and beat the living shit out of Will Hilton to the point where he nearly killed Will Hilton. And like obviously that is a situation like Will Hilton is no longer friends. That's a deal breaker. That yeah. was a deal like breaker. A restraining he order. Yeah. And he has a restraining order against him. Obviously that's an extreme case. Um because he, he was he, he literally has to fear for his life now around this dude. Yeah. But I think I think I think what's interesting about this question is um uh, particularly like the escort thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of a lot of men who are, care about egalitarian things like do go to strip clubs mm-hmm. once in a while. I mean, it is a legal thing. I don't. I, I'm not going to whip out like a sociological study because I don't have one. But I imagine some of the women doing the job hate it. Some probably don't. Yeah, and like we don't need to get into a whole debate over like sure. sex worker. I used right to live in San Francisco. There's like more ethical strip clubs you can go to. Yeah, <laughs> right, sure, and yeah. I mean, and and yes, if you're gonna go to a strip club, like it would be good to if you're a decent person, <laughs> the unionized don't, one. Don't go to like the one off Route One in Saugus, Mass. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but uh, but but the escort thing is, and and also again, just to complicate it. Even more. This is Las Vegas, right. where that is actually legal and where it's like regulated, and so presumably people are treated better than again going off Route One in Saugus, Mass. Um, but, but I don't know. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's 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 weird when you're fr- if you have a friend who wants to pay for sex, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, that's awkward for a bunch of reasons. Like, uh, yeah, and. Are you kind of asking like, should he speak up about that, or like, or like, should, or just, or that's just an awkward situation to? I to wonder, be in. I wonder if, if the guy is really like, it, I just think it depends on how close he is because I could see going to Vegas, like 
I personally speaking, as a coward, <laughs> but as somebody who like that was going to be my bit too, Dan. <laughs> I, I think I think that I would, if it was somebody that I was really close to, um, and felt like I could maybe get through to, who wasn't so far gone. Yeah, I might be like. Yo, why don't we chill on the escort thing? I don't think I would intervene on the stripper thing, even if I found it personally distasteful and didn't want to partake in it. Like I might just like be like, yo, I'm gonna go to the slots for a little while while you guys do this thing. But I but I think the escort thing, I might just say like, yo, like, are you sure we don't want to just like go to this club and like yeah. do this other yeah. thing? I might be like that. one time and then <laughs> never again. Right. Yeah, I was gonna say that my approach would probably be like half bringing up something like that not doing anything else, and then just kind of insidiously judging and um, running down this person to their other friends for the rest <laughs> of their life. <laughs> Probably what I would actually do. Uh, I want to hear the professional's take on this kind well, of tricky situation. I'm curious. I mean, the, the two dilemmas which we sort of mentioned but didn't get too into, like one is like I'm just thinking about the burden of having to keep a secret for this guy, like, right? We haven't even talked about the the his his partner. Yeah, that's uh, a whole aspect. Right, of it, like right. she's uncomfortable with right. this, and he didn't get too into like. I definitely know people who's um, for however it's come up in their relationship where their partner is like, you cannot go to a strip club, right? And like they they feel right, it would really upset them. So I don't know if that's the situation. That's something to think about, but also just like I don't know. I feel upset for this guy that his friends are sort of like cavalierly putting him in a position where he has to hold secrets right. for them. Right. Um, that's, yeah. That sucks. Like that's, I mean, and no, and he can't really. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, that's a more kind of, I, I mean, I, as you we've mentioned that the ethical question of paying for sex is, is a thorny one that's been tough to answer for a lot of people. Yeah. But the practical matter of having to keep a secret like that is, yeah like a daily burden, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. that's going to be something that kind of grinds on this, on, on him. Yeah. And I really, I, I would not want to, I would want to know as little as possible. You know, I feel mm -hmm. like that part seems important. Even if you can't like beyond speaking up, like that's when you should go gambling. It's like, like don't be near that hotel room or wherever, you know, whatever is going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's an interesting thing like to think about, it from the perspective of what these guys are imposing yeah. on him, right? Because um, that it is it is like an imposition just to assume that somebody who's how, he's thirty, yeah, uh, is just game for all of these checkbox activities <laughs> that are like, you know, not not like beyond the pale of. Uh, you know, human indignities, but like, you know, not something that like you just do on a nice little Saturday. I'm You're assuming, like I mean, I think for some yeah. friend groups, this is like, it's just more of a thing. You know, I'm assuming the, the way that this is just assumed that this will all be happening. Yeah. Like your more testosterone oriented. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, right. I mean, nothing like this caliber has happened in my personal life, but even knowing, you know my friends are you know my my male friends who are not particularly 
Um, you know, they're not jocks. They're they're not really alpha males. But yeah. you know, they I have been in situations where some people have certainly felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and so I can imagine if you're coming from a culture where this is more, uh, more common, that it, it might be less surprising. I feel like, given that. I mean, the only activity on this litany that's illegal is is cocaine. <laughs> uh, but given given that like these other things happen to be legal in Vegas, yeah, uh, like uh, hopefully, you know, l- let's let's just imagine these these guys aren't the worst humans on earth, and like hopefully are are going through like a decent escort service that. Like treats people okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm just playing. I'm just playing this out, right? right. Um, uh, uh, I do. I'm. I'm just kind of coming to the conclusion that um, there are only so many like bullets you can put in the like uh, gun of uh, standing up and calling out uh, other dudes in your life. I kind of mm-hmm. feel like. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just feel like that it's such a big hard thing to do that like I'm. I'm going to be hesitant on this show to like go to that place you're going so you're going like what's legal what's not if you're gonna draw a line like yeah, and, look and to well, the law also i'm just trying to set a standard for like i i think most men are um human beings and i i probably on the more cowardly end but i think like very few dudes are like actually somebody from a hollywood movie who stands up and it's like you're doing the wrong thing and here's why and like stands up stands up for justice i think it's a really hard thing to do so i don't want this show well not only is it a hard thing to do like just imagining it like i can't even imagine how that would go like what how would that look successfully yeah you'd be shunned you'd be shunned and And ridiculed and you'd lose your friends and they still wouldn't listen to you right so like what why would you do that totally so so that's why I'm, i'm just leaning towards like I don't think he should. I don't think he should intervene unless it's a situation where, like, he's unbelievably close to like the ringleader of all of this, mm-hmm. right. and he and he and he makes like a little suggestion is like, yo, you sure you want to do the escort thing? Like, there's that a one in particular club. is like that's yeah. like the most distressing one. Yeah, yeah, and I think he could just be. He could just say, you know, I think the message will be clear enough of being like, you sure you want to do that? We could do this other thing, and if that works. Great. If it doesn't, I don't think he should like push it and be like, I really don't think you should do that. Like, just because I think, as as you said, like it's probably not going to be effective. Mm-hmm. It'll, you know, I, I think the real issue here is like, it's okay for him to go and not partake in these activities, and he doesn't have to worry about like. I just think there's a. I think I think he can do it in a relatively seamless way that like nobody's really noticing. Most people are going to be probably drunk the whole time. Right. <laughs> no one's really going to notice. Yeah. And um and he can just not partake. And then yeah, and like, you know what? Now he's done the big solid of like going to the student's bachelor party. After that he's gonna have to go to the wedding. Beyond that, like he doesn't really have to hang out with this guy. Wait, what do you guys athletes. think about this is like uh as a fellow coward, one of my favorite <laughs> cop outs, which is to blame someone else if he said his girlfriend wasn't comfortable with him doing this. Would that be acceptable? No to say? way. No way. Uh, <laughs> that is a, a tempting option uh, in any of the situation uh, such as this. Um, I was going to say have children because I have feel like children. having children is an all-purpose excuse. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> Practically, you just can't do that stuff, and I don't think anyone would expect you to. Yeah. Um, so I would say um, bring another life into the world solely for your own utility would be my... But what would be the excuse there, like... Because you're not going to pull the like, 
I, I just had a daughter, so I have no respect <laughs> no, for the please dignity don't do of that. women. <laughs> please don't do that. No, so that's like, I, I can't go to Vegas because I don't have any money oh, anymore. I can't, yeah, and I, I can't I'm, go at all. Yeah. Yeah. Right, or even if you're there, I, don't, I, can't, I can't spend a lot of money. I mean, I, and this literally wasn't an excuse. I mean, it was just, it was just a real decision that I made. I want, there was a bachelor party for, for a pretty good friend of mine, quite good friend of mine, and um, I just... I have a four-month-old and a two-and-a-half-month-old who's having sleep regression. I was yeah. just like, I literally, I just cannot do this to my wife right now. Yeah. So you know, I had to do that recently. That. I, Actually, my, maybe behind my background was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> I felt like it didn't go over so well. But what can I? <laughs> yeah. What can yeah. you do? Um, but yeah. All right. So so maybe like yeah, another. Okay. So you, so he can't thing blame the his show girlfriend. Is like going to be upping people's excuse game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> But that's what that, that that that's the that's one of the things to me though like part of why I was excited even about like doing doing the show in the first place like I always try to do like in an, in an awkward situation like this I oh I mean I don't think I'm alone but I think I particularly do this I always try to do the most like expedient <laughs> least least awkward thing to get out of something like this usually, which usually involves some kind of excuse or white lie mm. and I think um, and I think like I don't know. Part of what's kind of interesting to ponder is, uh, I think, the fact that I do that a lot. I feel, um, you know, to use a not nice word, I feel like a bitch for doing that a mm-hmm. lot. I feel like I should feel like I would actually be more comfortable, like you know, with myself and feel you know more like a quote unquote man if I actually fucking you know, didn't make an excuse or a white lie and just like did things in a more straightforward way. We are. Yeah. We're, 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 we seem to have, uh, downplayed the possibility that this person could just, as we've said, kind of express his reservations with, with dignity. Uh, and just, we didn't really consider actually gain respect from his friends. (laughs) Thank you for, yeah. I mean, your example of not wanting to watch football, I believe you didn't tell me about that. You know, you played fantasy football for a year, but didn't ever check your team because yes. you and I, I really would have not had any judge i mean football is a brutal sport and i i would not judge anyone who felt like they couldn't participate in it so i think right. that you, you would were have, mad at me because i because i was a buzzkill in the it's a buzzkill when someone joins a fantasy league yeah. and doesn't do yeah anything. you fucked up yeah. the integrity of yeah. the weekly yes. uh yes. matchup you weren't so mad that i was boycotting football. no that's you a mad d- at the way very morally defensible yes. at, at attitude i think yes yes, yes. And <laughs> so I, what and, would that look like for this guy what what would the respectable uh, being straight up like i'm really excited to like celebrate you getting married can't wait to be there I'm not going to do X, Y, Yeah, I think that I think we assumed based on the, the set, setting that this person's friends were maybe maybe not accept like people who would accept that. But I, right. I, 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 I certainly, actually, yeah. Well, not to be classist or anything, but there is a line in there about how these are all dudes with like, you know, decent careers. Like these aren't these aren't like um, you know gangsters and uh, you know like pool sharks and snakes. Like right. these are potentially dudes who seem like they. Like, can listen to a reasonable. Or I don't know. It's Maybe not, I'm just being classist. It's not. It's not the Russian mafia. Yes. Like I, one would hope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like I've. I've been picturing it now. In fact, the your question was. Uh, how do you do this? And I feel like maybe uh, the answer is like before it starts, yeah. when you're giving your RSVP, yeah. you say what you what you see. Yeah, writing is can be an effective way of gathering your thoughts on a complicated subject. And you say, 
Uh, I'm very excited about this, and you and you convey the how what it what it means to be doing it. But you know, and I, I think a cop out that's okay is uh, is like at this point in my life. You know, any sentence that starts with at this point in my so, life, yeah. Like I think you can get a pat. You should be able to get a pass from I that. Mean, especially with the kids thing. Right. Well, we made like, that up. That's that's for us, not for. Oh him, yeah, yeah, but right. But I think even just even just having a, a long term girlfriend for yeah. for yeah. for men yeah. is, uh, and you, I think you could. That's the way to do it. We would kind of clearly convey that you're not comfortable with I it. I like without, the phrase at this point in my life because it could mean anything. It could be like. Yo, I'm like coming off like a six year coke bender. Right, and like right, really exactly. can't be doing coke right now. It could mean anything. Everyone, right? yeah, it gives everyone an out, you know. You and also, you know what I like about that? Is that it's not a fucking lie. Right. It's actually just because it could be anything. So it's actually not a lie. Right. You're not telling exactly your reason, but you're also not lying. Which I yeah. like, you know. Yeah, you're like, like, well, you're a little drawn to the sneakier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, Sam's white lies. <laughs> but, but, but that, I don't know. I don't even think that counts as a white lie to just be like, at this point in my life, I'm just not really, you know, in a in a place to. Yeah, you know, I don't have the energy. You know, I don't think I can. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. I mean, what I like, the reason why I think that's an elegant solution is it's it's not a white lie, and it's also not morally judgmental mm-hmm. because basically. Basically, if he were to say anything specifically about his moral qualms, immediately the dude is going to feel judged. So if he's making about himself and just like, at this point in my life, I'm just not in the place to blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It could be like, I mean, if he, if the dude really wants to read in between the lines, he could read, yeah, I am i don't think this is, at right. this point in my life, I'm not morally cool with any of this shit. Yeah, yeah. But it could, it could also just be, at this point in my life, I'm... You know, not not doing that shit. Just want a quiet n- quiet night out in Las yeah, Vegas. Yeah. Exactly. So right, um, I'm gonna look up like the local Scrabble club. There was just that piece <laughs> in the play. Times about like the Las Vegas literary scene. You know. Right, you, right, yeah. right. I'm gonna go to a book reading yeah. for Sam Graham Felson's novel. <laughs> uh, dramatic reading. Um, all right. So I think I I, I like that. I mean, yeah. I don't know. But I also well, the only other thing is because I do. I really respect um, being a good friend. I feel like I, I'm like sometimes a good friend, but sometimes I can drop the ball on this stuff. And you're willing, like this person's willingness to go and support his friend. And I would make, I would like say that, right? I can't wait to be there for you. Seems yeah, like right. an important, especially and since like your non-participation conveys like maybe mixed feelings about it. Right. Being really vocal about totally. it. Right. And I'm also like you. he can, and, and you know, he can, uh, make up for his killjoy absence on the, uh, you know, at the strip club by being like really fun at yeah. the fucking brunch the next yeah. day. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just like, you just know, the and, mayor like, of brunch. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And part of what, part of what bachelor parties are about is like, you know, preparing some kind of like toast or roast or whatever. Yeah. Like there's still going to be lots of stuff that he can do. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's not like the entire, like, like the, the list of vices there is, probably only like going to be 20% of the yeah. actual bachelor party. <laughs> the other stuff is like most bachelor parties are just like kind of sitting around mm-hmm. drinking beers right. like in a room. You know what I mean? Like yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of other stuff. Yeah. Going a good on. phrase I saw Mark Harris use, I think it was Mark Harris on uh, on um, Twitter, who's an entertainment uh, writer, uh, was uh, it's not for me. You know, which is kind of like and it's a similar it's a similar at this time in my life, you know. Yeah. It's you you didn't like a movie, but it's someone else might have liked it, and you don't have to insult them. Right. But yeah. they, you don't have to make them feel threatened because yeah. you didn't like Escorts it. It's not, not for, for me. me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Simmons does that too. Like, like when, when he doesn't like something. Yeah. Actually, Rem, David Remnick also um, 
his, maybe his, it just his, that's his what your successful people bit, have to do. His phrase is like a little bit more cutting. He <laughs> says it's not my cuppa. Uh, um, but but I, I think what's nice about it's not for me. I would still be hurt if somebody said your novel what just wasn't for me. Oh yeah, you. But I don't I, think you go out of your way to say that. But to it's someone. the least hurt I would possibly right. feel. In fact, mm-hmm. there was an agent that rejected my novel, who was like, "I see a lot of good stuff in this, but it's just not for me." Right. And I and again, I was right. hurt because he was a good agent. And I wanted him to like. Uh, obviously, I want my shit to be for everybody. Right. Yeah. But I totally responded to that better than I think any other kind of rejection. Right. Yeah. Because I thing, just felt yeah. like okay. Human, like, this is the great thing about human life. There's a diversity of taste <laughs> yeah. and opinion out there. Yeah. Like, it would really suck if everything was for everyone, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, so I like, I like that, that yeah. kind of, um, you know. And, you know, I mean, he can't use that exact phrase in this situation. Uh, you know. I don't know. You could, it's not my thing. It's not my thing. It's yeah. kind of a guy, it's kind it's of a guy phrase, thing. you know? That's, that's, that's decent. Um, what all right, do you so do? we're agreed, are we all agreed that he should go, though? Yeah, I yeah. Think so. I, well, yeah. I was gonna add. I was gonna ask you, what if his girlfriend's resistance was like more like what like no strip clubs, like you can't go. Okay, so so his girlfriend is like uh, no to all of these things, including you just can't go to strip clubs. I feel like I've heard that. I've heard from, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, then he should then he should respect his girlfriend and not go yeah. to the strip club. Um, uh, but if his girlfriend is like, it's okay to go to this ethical strip club. <laughs> <laughs> I might ask if it's okay if he goes and just isn't a pervert. You know, to, yeah, to, doesn't get a lap dance. Yeah, or, don't right. don't do the perverted stuff that people do at strip clubs and yeah. see if she's. Can we compromise, you know, on don't, that? Don't, like, dangle dollar bills off a fish, fish hook <laughs> right. next to someone's butt right. <laughs> just because right. you can in that setting. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think... I, well, okay, the girlfriend... Qu- I mean, I, I, I think he should um, not lie to his girlfriend, and I think he should... If he really, really thinks that there's, like, not much, like, ethically wrong or doesn't really have a huge problem going to the strip club, maybe he could talk to his girlfriend and be like, I'm not going to do any other things, but I'm going to do this one because I need to do, I, I want to participate in like some of these activities and not not be like apart from them the whole time. Maybe he could at least have a discussion. This is an girlfriend. aside. It's not what yeah. he's asking about, but I do think it's sort of strange, like policing someone's behavior because you don't like it. Versus like, I don't know, I feel like as a couple, maybe you want to be on, do you have to be on the same page about like, are strip clubs objectionable or not? Like, Yeah, that's tough. That's yeah. a tough question. I mean, I, I don't, I, I feel like asking someone to to not go to one if they're comfortable with it is a, it's a big ask. And it maybe is a sign that you're just not compatible people. You know, I don't, that's an unfortunate uh, conclusion, but I feel like that's a kind of thing you should agree on. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, it just seems weird, like if to even have to say you shouldn't do this, I don't know. It'd be like you the re, you should talk through the reasons before you make the yeah 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 for sure yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot there's a lot in in this question. I mean, the girl the girlfriend angle adds element adds a lot of extra kind of complexity beyond just the matter of his own taste and what he's comfortable with, you know, cause, cause there is the extra added feeling of like owing something to his partner. Um, if she's not comfortable with all of it. But yeah. 
Yeah, but but to the earlier question, like, can he use her? All I can do is speak from experience. Like, if I use my wife as an excuse, which, spoiler alert, sometimes I do. <laughs> uh, she, and she found out she would definitely be heated. She would really? definitely be heated. Oh, yeah, yeah. She'd be like, what the fuck? You're making me this, like, shrew who's telling you to not be one of the guys? Like, what is wrong with you? Why didn't you just... Just say you're not doing it. You right. know, like, why do you have to blame it on me? Also, I don't think other people respect that excuse yeah, that I think much that's anyway. The <laughs> yeah. No one likes that excuse. You can tell that the person's using it as a cop out. Right. And, and they'll, 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 A, they'll uh, accuse you of, sorry, they'll accuse you of, cop, of using it as a cop out. And B, uh, they will also have a negative impression of your girlfriend and be like, she's whipping you and this and that. Yeah, loose, loose. Which is not fair. Yeah. Um, So, all right, all right. I think we've given him some shit to think, think, Mm. think about. Yeah, I agree. Um, And I like, I like, I'm, I'm going to just, uh, double down on that. I think he should do the, uh, the less cowardly version. Agreed. uh, where he doesn't make up a white lie and instead just says some version of it's yeah. not, not for my me. Thing or it's not for <laughs> yeah. me. But I also like Avi your suggestion of like emphasizing how juiced he is to like go yeah, that's to good. his bachelor yeah. party so that like it softens the it's not for me part. Yeah. Because yeah. it's yeah. gonna be let's be clear, it's gonna be minorly uncomfortable for him to say it's not for me and for the dude to hear that. But it's not going to be that big of a deal. I also going off of that one last piece of advice, I feel like maybe like take it on yourself. To just come across as like really chill with your friends, like yeah. like let's say they all go see like escorts afterwards, like you should be super friendly and nonchalant with them. <laughs> totally. Don't make it awkward. You <laughs> know what I mean? Like don't don't give them any reason to think you're judging them. Yes, totally. Know? And and again, um, uh, I think I think just remembering that like other people who are drinking and having a great time in Vegas, like they're not obsessing over you separating yourself from the situation. They're not worried about you. They're not thinking about you. Like, um, so you don't have to be self-conscious about that. Just be chill. When they get back, just be chill. And like, no, you know, the great odds are no one's going to care. If there's one weirdo who really, really, really cares. Yeah. I agree with your statement that only in like a really like psychotic, either very young or very intense, almost like cult or like team like atmosphere. Would you, would anyone even, even notice like you're saying that someone wasn't participating? I think one of the nicest things about like reaching our thirties and and now in our cases, like stretching towards our forties now is that like, uh, that stuff doesn't exist really anymore. Right. It's basically just like if you don't want to do something, people are like, "All right, man, teach his own." Yeah, yeah. yeah. To each his own has become the spirit now <laughs> of like you know my my male friends, which yeah. is nice. Um, yeah. All right, so so we wrap up every show just asking our uh, guest to um, drop a piece of advice for our listeners right. that you have. Um, heard at some point in your life it could be from anyone but it's a piece of advice that has stuck with you and you think about um if not a lot in a recurring way and you found helpful okay okay i have a, I have a couple answers i do want to first note that i've i've given my some myself some advice i think my answer before about about feeling uncomfortable at work over issues related to gender or race was uh was pretty narcissistic because i think i framed it in a way of like my own feelings 
which I think is kind of a kind of a typical mistake to say I don't want someone else to think that I'm uh-huh. sexist. Uh-huh. I don't uh-huh. want someone else uh-huh. to think that I'm racist. I didn't even catch that. Yeah, I mean, and what I should actually feel is I don't want to make my colleagues yeah. uncomfortable by yeah. by you know expressing attitudes that make Joe them feel Biden, threatened. If or, you're listening, this yeah. is good advice for <laughs> you. Yeah, uh, right. It's yeah. not about like I mean, obviously everyone filters everything through. Oh, I hope everyone thinks I'm a good person. Yeah. Right. But like that's not really why you should do something. I'm, I kind of caught myself. I, oh, I hope as I said that. Um, I wanted to, one piece. The piece of advice was actually from uh, uh, the, about writing. Was always use your own words. Don't use anyone else's words. That's what sticks in my head when I was editing uh, your book. That is from uh, a. The, he was a senior when I was a sophomore in high school. His name was Ben Yamato. He was mm-hmm. the editor of the the one of the editors of the school newspaper. I've not looked him up because I feel like that's it's had such a legendary impact yeah. on my life that I don't want to f- use Facebook to just find out. I want him to that, like that exist in men. Yeah, or just, just anything mundane, you know. Right. Like he's, he's you like know heroic. Yeah, I want him to uh, <laughs> right. I want him to be kind of out there traveling the traveling the roads and byways of America, just just sharing his wisdom with other with other writers. Um, a good one for my dad was uh, basically the only advice my dad has ever given me was don't do acid and don't cheat on your taxes, hmm. which I think is actually like very sound. <laughs> And has uh, has resonance beyond its uh, specifics uh, about restraining yourself from certain types of activities that uh, may s- seem uh, rewarding in the short term, but ultimately are destructive. Uh, but I think what he literally meant was the only two things you shouldn't do are. I don't think he meant it. I don't think he meant it metaphorically at all. I think he just meant don't do acid and don't cheat on your taxes. Um, uh, but the, I think my I think my final answer is um, is goes back to. Uh, um, I, I'm paraphrasing, so I don't know if, if Adam Moss uh, were a listener of this podcast, which would be kind of strange, uh, and heard this if he would never not remember actually having said it. But uh, it was uh, when I was working in New York Magazine, and and I happened over here or be involved in a meeting in which, yeah, I think Adam was complimenting some writer, or writer had gotten a compliment from Adam, and he made me just mentioned offhand that you should never as an editor, but I think this is also true for life, never waste an opportunity to give a sincere compliment. Mm, I like that one. Yeah, and, and, it's a self, and it's selfish, it's a self-interested thing, because, yeah. uh, but it's also, it's, it, it, it hits that perfect spot of like, it's smart advice, yeah. it's savvy advice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's also, it's, it just makes you have a better life. Uh, and that's why this, you have to have the sincere part, right? Yeah. The sincere yeah, is the, like, yeah. the word, the key word. Yeah, you can't, it can't be false flattery and you can't, you can't just be doing it to get something back in return. But like, it just, it feels good to give a compliment. It feels good to receive a compliment. So I, I, I'm sure I don't, I don't live up to it. But like, I sometimes think if I'm reading an article, it comes, you know, it comes up for me when I'm reading an article and I think like that's a really good article. And, and the thing that I think he made it meaningful coming from him is Adam Moss has dealt with a lot of famous writers. Right. You know, I don't, I don't know. He wasn't talking about Michael Lewis, but he didn't, like it made me kind of think like Michael Lewis probably still likes getting compliments yeah. on his writing yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he probably yeah. doesn't get them that much yeah. Yeah. because people are just like, he knows he's a great writer, but right. he, if someone gives Michael Lewis a sincere compliment, it probably means a lot yeah, to him. 100%. Wants that. Yeah, and and so of course does like the person who's an editorial assistant and is and is writing their first article, and so like it just it works for everybody, and I think uh, and it also uh, is a good way to uh, ingratiate yourself. So it's yeah. a it's I mean, a win win. I think, I think uh, like um, it's it's really hard for uh, it's hard for me, and I honestly think it's hard for uh, like dudes more than for women to compliment yeah um 
because if you like say something really nice, you can come off as soft. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, you're just supposed to be snarky or like cynical, all yeah. or like competitive or judgy all the time. Yeah. In your, particularly in your relationships to other other men. So <clears throat> I find it even hard to compliment my wife, who it should be <laughs> the easiest person to compliment ever. Um, but we've we've started this thing where uh, like we try every single night. <clears throat> excuse me, I have, I have a cold. Every single night we try to say one thing that we appreciated about the other person mm-hmm. today, uh, like a gratitude. Mm-hmm. And I like honestly, to be honest, seventy five percent of the time I don't feel like doing it, <laughs> but we do it because it's part of our tradition now, right. and it always like makes both of us feel better. And one of the th- and but but even harder is I think complimenting my male friends, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just want to say we have this group of friends, uh, mostly from college, some from other parts of our lives. <clears throat> We're on this email list with about fifteen guys, and part of one of the traditions on this list is that when it's somebody's birthday, people write in just really sincere compliments, and. To this day, I struggle with this because, like, half of the time I'm like, oh, this is such a corny ass <laughs> ritual. It's so, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, of course, like, every time I actually make the effort to do it, I feel really good. And every time I've ever received one of those, yeah. I feel incredible. Right, and yeah. it's funny. It's like the only that is pr- that and the, the once a year reunion that we have where people, yeah. it's also part of the ritual there to, like, sort of compliment or toast one of the other uh, uh, members of this email list. That's the only time of the year where I think like I compliment my male friends. Mm. Other than like, yo, that was a good shot. You yeah, know? so like I was basketball. I it's funny. I was thinking when you said that, like I think, you know, the women I know like are much better at complimenting in the course of a regular conversation. Yeah. Even like, I mean, it's it's, <laughs> it's, the, it's funny because this is like such a women are from. Yeah, like, right. I don't. I don't want to like, be reductive. No, but, yeah. but it's funny because like even like like. Every single time Sasha sees one of her female friends, like when she sees Caroline, Ben's wife, she'll be like, that's such a cute outfit. Like, yeah. I have never yeah. once been like, yo, I really like that <laughs> outfit. <laughs> I think men compliment each other's shoes. I've actually that's complimented true. your shoes. Shoes are acceptable. Shoes can, are acceptable. Yeah. The one thing a man can yeah. easily yeah. get away with in yeah. terms of a compliment. Yeah. But it's... Uh, but yeah, it's a funny thing. And it's like shoes and coat. It's like it can't be something that actually touches their skin. Like <laughs> it has to, you ha- can't give that level of intimacy. But this is, <laughs> this is not to underline this too much, but like we're, we're not like advertising that this is the point of the show. But I think on some level, um, you know, it just, this is like yet another instance of like, it's kind of sad when you think about it. Yeah. That we're not even fucking allowed to say like nice shirt. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, um, like our lives would be objectively better if we could say like nice shirt. To I our friends, I think to know? to to take it to a Mars Venus level. Uh, I think that I think that one. I think the men that I know. I, I always phrase all of this as far as people that I know uh, to not be essentialist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think like actually like there are some upsides to like I think the, the the men in my peer group have like a little better easier time like telling each other hard truths. Yes. You know? Um and I think that like that's just because of part of the tropes of the conversation is that yeah. like to not be as positive uh with each other and that it obviously has its downsides as well, but I I think that 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 might be like one way to distinguish. All right everyone, that's it for our show this week. 
as always, if you have a question, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at heymanpod at gmail.com or even better, give us a call. Leave us a message at 917-426-4326. We'd love to uh, put your voice on the show. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at heymanpod. And please, uh, if you have a moment, especially since this is a new podcast, uh, give us a review wherever you uh, get your podcast. It really helps other people find out about the show. Thanks so much and talk to you next week.